From Olympic City and the home of Pikes Peak, this is the Automotive ADHD Show. Yeah, here we are rocking it on the Automotive ADHD Show, 91.7 KLZR, Voice of the Wet Mountain Valley, also heard as a podcast around the world. My name is Matt West. I'm here to hang out with you, talk cars, and oh, I got a fun show in the works for you. Coming off of a uh, off of a week break for me, I uh, I definitely I took some time off. I am refreshed, I am rejuvenated, and I am here and ready to regale you with more stories about the Pikes Peak Hill Climb. The race has come and gone. We learned a lot of stuff. There were some crashes. There was terrible weather, and it was spectacular and fun. All at the same time, and uh, we're going to talk about that. We're also going to delve into some other topics. We're going to talk about Ferraris. Yeah, I'm going to take a, a whole segment of this episode here to, um, to 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 clown on some Ferrari owners uh, because I'm not cool enough to own a Ferrari. So this is the least <laughs> the least I can do. It's going to be fun. Uh, going to talk about NFTs and again, just oh man, just uh, had such a fantastic fantastic week. I will say, you know, I did take some time off, a whole week off from the show. If you are wondering, hey, where where was the show last week? Well, there wasn't one. I know, I know. And uh, I was uh, taking time with uh, 4th of July being a week ago now. Uh, of course, here in the United States, we celebrate Independence Day. We celebrate our departure from King George III. And uh, I will say, you know, hey, maybe it's a little weirder for some of my listeners in other countries. I know I have a lot of listeners in Europe, and uh, it's one of those things that, you know, you're like, huh, why did all the Americans just disappear on the 4th of July every year? That's uh, Hey, they just, they take it off. Well, yeah, that's, that's why. And uh, it's a great time, though, to enjoy some fireworks, to spend some time with family. I did all of the above, and uh, of course did some fun car stuff, too. I did go to look at a trailer on 4th of July that I was debating buying, and then, well, what can I say? I bought it. <laughs> it was uh, it was way cheap. It's a project trailer. It's a car hauler. It's been sitting in the woods for 15 years, and it, it needs love. But I did buy it because the reality is most of my cars don't run most of the time, and occasionally I need to move them when they're running or not. So anyway, that's what I did with my 4th of July week, um, and I hope you had a great 4th of July week as well, uh, enjoying fireworks, enjoying maybe some smoky burnouts. There was uh, a burnout competition going on uh, that I drove by. I went up to visit some friends in Denver, and just driving by, we, there was a... There was a um, uh, parking lot on the side of the freeway and there were like 30 cars there all doing burnouts and it was spec i had to just slow down and kind of pull off for a second to watch it it was great so that's uh that's america there we 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 do that sort of fun stuff so um anyway now what i want to get into real quick here before we talk about hill climb before we talk about any of that stuff nfts NFTs. Oh boy. Oh boy. Yep. I've talked about NFTs before. If you're unfamiliar with them, they are non-fungible tokens. And essentially what that means is it's a digital way to authenticate a file, an image, a JPEG, if you will. It's a way to have digital art that allegedly is supposed to be uncopyable, or you could still screenshot it, but no, you don't have the little code, you don't have that that NFT, that token to go with it to prove its authenticity. I think this whole thing is ridiculous. But but the latest thing to get NFT'd, uh, NFT'd, is that a is that a word? Is is that a verb, an adjective? I I, I don't know, but it's a word now. We're, we'll uh, we'll make that such. But um, it's a Corvette, 
And what's impressive about this is Chevrolet uh, debuted a NFT of the C- C8, I almost said C6, that's that's a little while back now, the C8 Z06, um, and it's a image, it's a JPEG, it's a, it's a C8 Z06, it's in bright green, and it's drifting through the artsy, animated-looking city streets of a, I don't know, sort of uh, vaporwave, uh, cyberpunk aesthetic. It doesn't, it's not particularly that striking of an image to me. I will say that it's uh, it's not my flavor, but the fact is that Chevrolet for this NFT, and they're not the first manufacturer to start selling NFTs of their cars. Uh, Acura did this recently with the Integra, the new Integra. Um, they put this NFT up for auction for two hundred and thirty eight thousand dollars. What? Oh, my gosh. Um so yeah, it started bidding started at 206 Ethereum, which at the price at during the time bid, bidding, uh, crypto has uh, taken a big hit here even in the past couple of days. That stuff changes every day. Uh, RIP my uh, <laughs> my crypto wallet. I don't want to think about it. But uh, anyway, yeah, basically 238 thousand dollars, which is a significant quantity more than buying the actual Z06, which hasn't gone on sale yet. But for the 2023 model year, reportedly. Um, it's going to be in the $90,000 range, which is uh, a lot of money, but that's also a lot of performance for less than $100,000. That's actually really good. That's a pretty good performance bargain right now, um, especially because this Corvette is is absolutely nearing you know high-end supercar levels of performance. It totally is. Um, but still, paying $238,000 for an okay picture drawing, essentially, of this Corvette, that's a steep ask. That's a steep ask. And would you believe it if nobody bought the NFT? Nobody got it. Literally no one. Yep, the the bidding fell flat. No one bought this. Everyone said, I think everyone is growing wise to this NFT stuff. I think a little bit of it is kind of a fad. You know, it's uh, incredibly expensive for what it is. I do get where Chevy's coming from by saying, oh, oh, let's make some rare NFTs of our cars and just hire a digital artist to draw our car doing something, do a, a drawing of it. And um, yeah, because it doesn't cost $238,000 to pay a digital artist to do a sketch of this car and then do it up in Adobe Illustrator Photoshop, whatever their tool of choice is. That's not $238,000, but oh, it's an NFT. Oh, it's rare. There's only one. Ooh, yeah, you can totally screenshot it. But, uh, you know, the fact is that, you know, ooh, we can we can do this on the cheap and then sell it for a lot of money. I think that's what they're trying to do. Um, but the hype around this is totally has totally waned. I think no person realistically has looked at this NFT and said, I would rather have that than buy the Corvette. And I'd rather have that than buy two and a half Corvettes. Um, because the fact is, for the price of this NFT, you could buy the car that the picture is of and have tons of money left over, uh, a significant quantity of money left over, and then you could go out and enjoy the art of the car every day that you walk into your garage. Because I'm sorry, uh, cars, I mean, I know you agree with this. I'm kind of preaching to the choir here a little bit. But cars are absolutely art. There is no way around that. Sure, the design of it is art. You have designers and artists who design the cars. But the engineering is also art. Because the engineers, that's the underappreciated art of these cars. The designer has to come up with a design, and then the engineers, 
you know, they have to design that car around what the engineers tell them they can do. And then the engineers have to then take that design and then actually make it work in real life. You have to be able to drive it. It has to be able to be uh, reliable. It needs to be durable. It needs to serve its function, whether that's as a sports car or whatever. And importantly, you need to be able to build it, too. So you have a whole team of developers devising ways to manufacture the car in this style and make it work. I think the engineering of these cars is just as much of art as the design of the cars. Because without one, you can't have the other. I'm just saying, you know, you can't have a beautiful car without the designer who, you know, drew it up. But you also can't have it without the engineers who made it a reality. And uh, that is, I think that cars are art. Fight me on it. I know you won't. Maybe someone will. I don't know. Anyway, hey, we got more stuff coming up. I am going to give you the whole rundown of how the hill climb went. And it was interesting, it was sketchy, it was cold, and it was a whole lot of fun. And I'll tell you about that here, coming up in just a second. At the Speed Council, getting things done fast is our priority. We do everything fast, from driving, working, sleeping, and eating. Someone help, he's choking! This is Tim. Hello. And by the time this ad is over, he'll have bicycled across the earth 69 times. Nice. Even if our name sounds unfamiliar, you know our work. F1? Pfft, child's play. The world's first supersonic jet? Yep, that was us. Apollo 11? Also us. The fastest animal in the sea? Hell, we even wrote the Wikipedia article. Fast. And we're so dedicated to speed that we've genetically engineered the world's first hyperspeed speed machine. With this scientific breakthrough, you can download your favorite automotive podcast a whole day early. How's that for fast? Patreon.com slash Throttle Warrior. Donate now. Download the show early and receive special perks. This message approved by the Speed Council and the Church of Fast Things. All right, here we are rocking it for the second segment of the Automotive ADHD Show. Matt West here. I want to thank you for joining me on this amazing edition of the show as I regale you the tales of uh, my experience at the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb. Oh boy, it was exciting. But before we get to that, those car sounds were courtesy of Jeremy Schaff. That is his 2017 Honda Accord uh, with a K24 and a six-speed manual. Oh, yeah, you know how I love those cars with the manual transmissions. Honda makes such a nice manual, and uh, yeah, you know, I love it. I love it. Jeremy, thank you for um, sending those car sounds in. You will be entered for a chance to win some interesting stuff. Uh, regular listeners of the show know that I give away the Automotive ADHD keychain as well as a $25 gift certificate to your favorite parts store. Now, that said, I would normally have pulled a winner uh, at the beginning of last week's show, but as there was no show, um, what I'm going to do, though, is uh, Jeremy, everybody, everyone else who sent in car sounds this past month, I'm going to ask you to hang on just a tiny bit longer because I got a new prize in the works that hopefully will be ready here uh, for the end of this month, and I will do the drawing then. I could either do it now and give you the regular stuff, which is good, but if you want to wait just a little longer, I got something else cool uh, in the works. In addition to all this, I'm just adding stuff to the pile of things that I'm giving you for sending car sounds in. So it is very cool. So hang tight. I will do the drawing uh, here towards the end of this month instead. So 
There we go. Uh, now, of course, if you do want to send those car sounds in, facebook.com slash automotive ADHD. Also, Matt at throttlewarrior.com. Oh, yes. Now, now the uh, let's get on to some of the hill climb stuff. I have been heavy on this topic for the past month. It is such a big event that happens every single year. Now it has come and gone, and I can kind of tell you some of my thoughts of how it went, what happened, and it's, uh, it's, it's very cool. And you know what? I'm going to... You know, some might say, oh, you're hitting on this too hard. It's been a whole month, but that's okay because this only happens once a year. We've got a whole nother year now until some more Pikes Peak Hill Climb action. So uh, what we're going to do is uh, we'll we'll soak it up while we can. Now, that said, I was uh, on the mountain. So you heard the show where I did it. Uh, I did the show live from the Hill Climb Fan Fest. That was on the Friday before the race on Sunday. So I go up Sunday and uh, I'm, uh, I have myself uh, kind of positioned, stationed. I was part of the um, media going in as well. I had a fancy orange vest and had to attend all sorts of safety meetings where they told me how to not get run over by a race car. I did bring my camera and I got some neat shots up there, some neat audio, some good stuff. But I didn't do the show from up there. I just wanted to get a little bit of media, a little bit of what I could. But I went up there staged out of uh, the Devil's Playground area, which is a kind of nickname for the area near the top. It's kind of a little parking lot area up there near the top, and it's very high up. You're above tree line. You're so high up that trees do not grow there. They do not. That is the, that's what they mean by tree line. It's very high up, over 13,000 feet at that point as you approach the last 1,000 feet to the summit, which is 14,000 feet above sea level, uh, which, uh, again, for uh, uh, my friends in um, in other countries who use a lesser unit of measurement, that is 4,267 meters. Gosh, wouldn't it be nice if we could all just agree on one unit of measurement, one that just made sense? <laughs> <laughs> hope you could catch the sarcasm there but anyway anyway uh anyway it was it was fun though so the thing is what you got to realize is during practice week uh, and myself being part of the approved media that was allowed to go into the race i was also allowed to attend the practice days which i did and i got to see jimmy ford racing out there with his bronkzilla oh my god that was cool of course uh he was absolutely ripping it setting some great section times in his Bronco uh, on those practice days. And uh, if you do look for that Bronco, it was featured recently in The Drive. It was very cool. Again, big congratulations to Jimmy. He's doing big stuff. Uh, you will notice on the back window of that Bronco, this very show's logo. You got to, it's, it's just a little bit of an Easter egg, you know, keep, keep an eye out for it. It's really cool. But again, I really have to commend Jimmy on the stuff that he was doing. But before I get ahead of myself, um, the conditions on race day were terrible. Oh my God. The conditions during qualifying were amazing. It was so nice out. It was, in fact, the mornings were perfect. Just those crisp, cooler summer mornings in the mountains. The air was crisp. It wasn't too hot, wasn't too cold, and no wind, nothing, and a warm sun at your back. I mean, the practice days were perfect. You could not ask for better conditions than what we had on the practice days. That said, race day comes along. The temperature drops 20 degrees at the starting line. It is foggy. You can't see 30 feet in front of you, if that. And then it's really cold fog, too. And bear in mind, yes, it is the end of June, but at, you know, on the mountain in the, in the month of June, there is snow. You were so high up. The air is so much colder at that altitude. Uh, just, and, and also through the fact that the air is less dense up there. There's a number of challenges that make Pikes Peak the most challenging hill climb in the world. There's other hill climbs that are maybe 
maybe, dare I say, more technical. But that's even a stretch. Uh, but that said, it's uh, one of those things that... Um, you know, sure, maybe there's different sections of road that are more challenging, but I don't think there's a single race in the world that has as much unpredictability as Pikes Peak in terms of conditions, weather, the road conditions, too. The road itself changes every year because of the freeze-thaw cycle. The ground freezes, thaws, expands, contracts over the course of a year. So you might have ran, ran it last year if you're a driver, and then you run it again the next year, and there's new bumps and cracks in the road that weren't there before and when you're going 120 plus miles an hour through those sections in a race car those new bumps can catch you off guard so it is a very demanding race and the weather is very unpredictable and now myself we got in to our position uh, i was there with a buddy and we got up there at 4 30 in the morning it was uh, there was going all the way up the mountain was brutal because uh, media was supposed to have earlier access in the night but all the general admission folks decided to come at the same time be early all the general admission folks came in early clogged up the whole gate to get in so we got there at 1 30 didn't get up to our spot until about 4 30 in the morning and once we got up there the fog was so dense it was cold there was snow on the ground the road was wet borderline icy wasn't too slippery yet and uh but it was still it was pretty slick i mean it, and i was driving my daily the um automotive adhd tacoma got a big old sticker on it now but that's the only thing that makes it automotive adhd it's a stock tacoma what can i say but uh that said it is uh, i was driving that and i was able to kind of feel the road just even at a, you know 20 miles an hour i'm like gosh this is this is gonna suck the race on this is gonna be brutal and uh so anyway i catch a few few hours of sleep in the truck 7.30, the cars start rolling. Get woken up by the race cars. The sun is out now. Well, I say the sun is out. I mean, it is incredibly, it is impossibly foggy. The fog is just lighter now. You can, there's more light going through it, I guess. It's it's brighter out. Not so much. I, we didn't really see the sun all day. But, um, I mean, hey, you know what? Fog or not, the first cars started going up the mountain. They started racing uh, and immediately running into conditions up top. It was wet at the bottom, dry at the middle, and then wet at the top again. It was very strange. So that makes an interesting challenge. Um, Randy Popes, one of the drivers, he was driving the uh, Tesla Model S Plaid. And uh, he made the comment that it was very difficult. And on his um, his YouTube channel, which I, I love Randy's YouTube channel because he really you know goes into the ins and outs of the racing that he does. He gives a full race commentary on his run up the mountain. I would suggest you check this out. But he talks about... The challenge that they had to decide whether or not to run rain tires, tires specifically designed for racing in the rain, because, OK, those tires are going to be better in the wet sections. But in the sections of the mountain in the middle that are just inexplicably dry, because, again, you can't predict the conditions on this mountain, then it's it's dry. And those tires that are formulated, the compound, the rubber, the tread is all designed to run as efficiently in the wet. Well, that doesn't work as well in the dry now. So you lose grip in the dry to gain grip and safety in the wet. And they ultimately made the decision to run the rain tires because the bottom was going to be wet and the top was going to be wet. And the middle, they just had to put up with what they had. They just had to deal with the fact that the tires were not operating uh, optimally in the middle of the race. Uh, and now that also brings me to another issue caused by the rain, which is uh, the rain, the fog, all of that, which is uh, driver visibility was a big problem. There were a couple of crashes and uh, I was, um, in fact, just a couple yards down from uh, one of them, uh, Will A. Young's drive uh, in his um, uh, Honda Civic, his ninth gen Civic, 
Uh, I mean, we heard that crash from Devil's Playground, but we couldn't see it. He ended up missing a corner and clipping the edge of a road and then tumbling several times. Managed to land on the road itself. At least he didn't go down an embankment. But again, the 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 conditions were very bad. And there's another crash. I'll, I will get to it here. I am just going to kind of unpack this whole day that happened because it was fun. I want you to know what this was like to be there. Uh, I will say at 13,000 feet where we were, not quite at the summit, it was very cold. The windshield in my truck was fogging up. It was terrible. And again, you know, you drive up before the racing happens. And yeah, you're doing 20 miles an hour instead of 120. But you get a feel of... Okay, I kind of understand what these drivers have to put up with a little bit. I I won't claim to understand what they have to put up with, but I at least got a I got a snippet. I got a little tiny little sliver at a lower speed of wow. This is this is going to be tough. This is tough. So, um, but the the fogging was a major issue because you have to whether or not you have traction and you're in the dry section of the race or you're in a wet section of the race. Um, it doesn't matter because your visibility is terrible. All of the drivers are having to maintain slower speeds so they could see corners coming up. And uh, one major issue that was presented uh, in the Teslas. There were two Tesla Model S plaids running, one of them being driven by uh, Randy Popst and um, uh, and the other one uh, was being driven by an, uh, my name, uh, or his name rather, <laughs> escapes me. Um, but uh, it was another driver going with his uh, two different Tesla Model S plaids, and the issue, the, the the present issue that happened was that the touchscreens in these cars, these cars are modified for racing, they have roll cages, all this stuff, but otherwise the interior is kind of stock. Yeah, they don't have carpet, they tore some of that stuff out, but the dashboard and everything, you really need to leave all of that stock to operate the Tesla hardware and be able to control all of the functions of the car, which are all routed through a touchscreen, a big center dash touchscreen. Everything on the car is done through that. And I've complained about that before, not just in this context of racing. I think buttons are superior to touchscreens, and a lot of the industry is following along with that. Some manufacturers are going more heavy on touchscreens. Other manufacturers, uh, like recently one of the uh, lead designers at um, Stellantis, which owns, you know, uh, Chrysler, Dodge, Fiat, you know, and all that, that stuff, um, they uh, actually said, you know, we're going to start pushing towards more physical controls again. The The touchscreen stuff is novel, it's cool, it's a fad, but it doesn't make as much sense. And I would agree with that, especially because the issue here on Pikes Peak was, for instance, for Randy Popes, his windshield started fogging up, but he had issues um, actually being able to turn the defroster up. The car, the defroster controls were in the touchscreen, which is all but impossible to operate with the thick racing gloves on and even being able to reach that touchscreen. And the problem is, too, it's a touchscreen. You have to visually look at something, see it, and then touch it to, to change that function. That just doesn't work while you are racing. Like, while you are pushing a car to its limits, you're now also contending with fog and poor conditions. And then just to even think you have to take your eyes off the road for half a second to look at the screen and, and tap where something should be. You don't have that physical button or knob that you could grab if it was a normal car with physical controls you could be keeping your eyes on the road reach down and grab the climate control knob and turn the fan speed up you could do it by feel which is something you lose with um uh with you know the uh, touchscreen and um uh, oh and the other driver his name just came to me uh blake fuller 
was one of the other drivers running a Tesla Model S Plaid. And he said, and I have the quote here, he said, quote, I felt like an older person trying to program a VCR in the middle of my run, end quote. And uh, then he also goes on to say, it's a combination of pressing the buttons and scrolling wheels. It's like juggling. And he says, quote, I don't juggle well. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. That is a great way to put it. And uh, for, for the younger audience, VCRs, you know, the tape players. Yeah, no, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> it's, it's a car show. I won't explain what a VCR is. But having said that, having said that, that's one major challenge that I think a lot of drivers faced was the fogging. And then that also presented an issue with these Teslas and the uh, touchscreen controls. Now, moving on from that, there was uh, another crash that was rather spectacular. And I can say it was spectacular because the guy, not only did he walk away, he drove away from it. Yep. Yep. There was uh, one of the drivers and uh, he was uh, <laughs> he was running his course. Uh, it was Levi Shirley, number 81. And he was running in a more of a um, I can't remember what the car was. It was a more of an open wheel car. I didn't see this. I was too high up to actually uh, see the um, the car itself to see this crash. But he's and there's great video of this. I, I will uh, I will go ahead and post a clip of this on the automotive ADHD Facebook page. You have to see it because it is brilliant. He's driving through the corners. You see all the fog. You really see the conditions the drivers are having to put up with as he's driving. His car has no windshield. He's just got the visor on his helmet and he's periodically taking a little microfiber towel and wiping the fog off of his helmet. Well, no. So he ends up missing a corner because of the fog. And um, what's funny is he misses the corner, understeers through the corner, goes off an embankment, tumbles into a set of trees. But then, you know, he goes over. The car flips like twice. But it miraculously landed on its wheels. And the dude, without missing a beat, without even taking a second to gather his bearings. No, he was right back on it. Grabs the, you know, grabs the wheel again. Throttle down, full power, powers back out of this embankment in the trees onto the road after rolling the car twice and gets back to the race. I mean, his time was probably knocked out by a couple of seconds at best. Uh, and uh, uh, Levi Shirley ended up finishing with a time of 1344, which um, was... Uh, you know, no one had good times on the mountain at all. That is a very commendable time, especially considering that he flipped his car and kept going. While I was at the uh, top there at Devil's Playground, we didn't have any cell signal or anything, so I was relying on the uh, radio broadcast on one of our local radio stations here, KRDO. They do a uh, they do sort of a play-by-play uh, -play coverage on the radio of the race. And it's over AM, and that's all I could pick up there at the top of the mountain. Again, no cell signal, nothing. I was relying on their broadcast, and I'm listening to it up there. And they say, yeah, he went off the course, but miraculously landed on his wheels and kept going. And I said, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. Is that is that racing or what? And uh, after we heard that on the radio, I said, I, I got to wait until somebody posts a video of this. And sure enough, the onboard footage was published a little bit later. And uh, it's just as cool <laughs> as it sounds. Yeah, Levi Shirley, got to give a uh, a big shout out to him for some incredible driving there. That uh, that is just that's awesome. I you know what? Again, that's racing. That's the sort of spontaneity that you have racing Pikes Peak that you lose a lot of that in other forms of motorsport. I am on this show have been critical in the past of Formula One and how sanitized and how safe and how everything has to be so specific into the rules and. Now, Pikes Peak here is a complete departure from that, and uh, Pikes Peak to me really embodies um, the spirit 
of motorsports. And guys like Jimmy Ford, uh, who work a 9-to-5 job five days a week and on the weekends work on their race car so they can go participate in one of the biggest, most dangerous, most well-known, most acclaimed hill climbs in the world. And that is fantastic. And I love that. I love that. So uh, without without going too far into the rest of this here, I, I guess I can you know conclude that the Pikes Peak experience was incredible. I loved it. This was my first year actually attending the race on the mountain, especially as uh, media as well. Again, they, you know, I, I was able to get access to a couple areas on the mountain that you're not normally allowed to go to as a spectator. I mean, for better or for worse. I mean, I didn't get hit by a race car, so that was that was that was good. Uh, there was one other crash that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Will A. Young in his ninth gen Civic. That was incredibly strange because. What happened with that crash and being there, you know, I was just a little ways past, uh, I'd parked at Devil's Playground and I was on the side of the road just a little ways past it, barely being able to see the race cars, barely catching any footage with my camera because at the time the fog was so thick. And that was so strange. When he crashed, he goes flying by. And then in the distance, you hear what sounded more like wind, just a, a whooshing noise. And kind of, it's like, what, what was that? And then you, you hear some other people talking who had, you know, radios and stuff like that. were like, oh, there's a crash. There's a crash just past Devil's Playground. And then I realized, holy crap, I just heard him crash. I just couldn't see him crash. Had there been no fog, I would have had clear visibility to that. And it was even challenging, too, because some of... Um, what I heard, uh, you know, from uh, listening to the play-by-play uh, -play radio broadcast as I was trying to catch little details here and there was that the, uh, the uh, race officials were having a tough time finding him. You know, his car tipped and landed upright in the road. Well, he flipped several times, like, like nose over tail. But ultimately, the car came to a rest in the road. And at least we can joke about this a bit because he walked away uh, uninjured. So, of course, that's good. You know, I, I think most folks here can appreciate the fact that there were no really substantial injuries or, heaven forbid, deaths on the mountain this year. Despite the conditions, nothing truly tragic happened, which is good. Uh, you can rebuild the race cars. You, you, you know, if you die crashing a car, that's, that's not good. You know, if, as long as you survive, that's always good. That's what I've heard talking to hill climb drivers that you, they say, you know, you know what, we want this time. But honestly, as long as we finish, we're, we're happy. We will leave happy. And that's what happened, honestly. You know, there's, uh, you know, with this crash with um, that Civic, you know, again, he, he managed to walk away. But the race officials, because of the fog, had a tough time finding him. They had to go slowly up the course because they could see their their visibility was so low that they didn't want to accidentally run into him, you know, because, you know, they didn't want to accidentally crash into him with the safety car because they couldn't see him. So they had to take it really slow, really easy and uh, go from there and it could have been a lot worse had he gone off one of the cliffs there are many cliffs there are many many places that are much worse to crash than that and had he gone down one of the cliffs well you go 20 feet down that cliff and because of the fog you can't see anymore so that's one part of the danger with this was that you just if someone actually went off the edge you'd never be able to find them. Not till the fog cleared, and heaven forbid, you know, if they weren't conscious or if they were injured badly, they would be down there unable to signal for help, and you just wouldn't be able to find them. So that is one danger with running in the fog. I don't know if they will run in the fog as substantially next year. I really don't. Uh, there was a lot of talk during the event of shutting it down. A lot of drivers. Um, and I'm only, I, I heard this secondhand, but to me it sounded like uh, it was either Reese Millen or Rod Millen, one of the Millens, 
Um, and because uh, the father son running there, Rod Millen running the um, the old school Tacoma that used to race Pikes Peak, and then Reese Millen running uh, a uh, Porsche 911. But uh, it was one of them, and I heard you know just kind of hearsay that they you know oh yeah the you know Millen was saying that we should we should stop racing here. You know, one of the drivers was really complaining, saying, hey, I finished the race, but this was dangerous. We need to stop. And they didn't stop the race, and no one got hurt, so that's good. But would they make the same decision next year? I don't know. When do you, uh, you know, it would be great if I could, um, you know, reach out to some of the race officials, actually, and I, and I may do this, to get a follow-up. Like, where do you decide to put a halt to the race because you have the whole race is filled with professional drivers. These people have raced in the rain before guys like Jimmy Ford have raced on dirt for most of their career. they are no strangers to racing in low uh, traction conditions, but racing in the fog with low traction adds a whole nother dynamic of danger to it. It's just impossibly dangerous. And, you know, again, you have to credit the the drivers who did this for pushing through it and saying, we're going to race anyway, and we're going to take the risk and we're going to do it. Is it the right decision? It's not my decision to make. Ultimately, it has to be the decision of the guy behind the wheel. Does he want to do it knowing the um, the the difficulty of the conditions? So overall, though, I think it was a spectacular event. Would I attend again? Oh, yes, I would. I would absolutely do that. And you can expect me to do it again next year. And uh, now that I also kind of, you know, having done the event, having taken the show out to the Fan Fest on that live, it was great. And I learned so many lessons, too, of some different things that we can do that just to make stuff even better. Next year is going to be even cooler than this year. It was a, you know, something as cool as a once in a lifetime experience. But the cool part about it is it's not a once in a lifetime experience. It's going to come around next year and we get to do it all over again. And I am really, really stoked for that. And uh, I can't wait to follow up with some of the teams, the drivers, and uh, provide you a little bit more insight into the race. I know we're not going to beat the hill climb thing entirely to death. We're not going to do that. We're going to kind of get back to some more of our regular program stuff. Uh, that's, you know, the, the, the usual mediocrity that you are used to hearing here. <laughs> we'll get back to that. I promise you that. It'll be good. Um, but it's just cool being able to uh, take you along for this ride. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I do want to thank you for coming for the ride. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. So anyway, I have one more segment of the show. Oh, yes, I do. And we're going to talk about some Ferraris. Speaking of rain, speaking of fog, speaking of things getting crashed, well, this uh, this all happened, but not at Pike's Peak, and uh, it was very expensive. I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you about it here, coming up in just a minute. And now for how things work with an engineer. Engines. Speed. And that was how things work with an engineer. For more of how things work, go to patreon.com slash throttlewarrior. That is Nikos and his, as we would call in America, Acura TSX. Very fun. His is very modified. Lots of fun. Just a great enjoyable daily driver makes lots of good noises could you hear the induction noise in that that was awesome so he is a former winner of the car sound of the month but that is a new car sound that he just sent in i'm just saying hey you if you've got more car sounds to share please please do 
do not restrain yourself from sharing those. And uh, even if you won, look at it. I got a lot of folks who've won, and they keep sending stuff because we enjoy it. I am on a quest to play everybody's car sounds on the radio and also on a podcast on this as well. And as you know, this show does happen on the radio, 91.7 KLZR Voice of the Wet Mountain Valley. If you do want to catch it, that happens Saturday mornings, uh, 10 o'clock here in Southern Colorado. But you know what? For the rest of us, we enjoy the podcast. I think there's a special place for both the podcast and the radio show. And they they both do different things. You know, the podcast, you can listen to it anytime, anywhere. And uh, you know what? That's that's a fantastic. If you really want to hear me that badly, please, you can... Uh, you can do it more than I, you can hear me more than I want to hear myself if you want to do that. I don't know why you would, but just saying. So anyway, now uh, what I want to talk about here is some other interesting stuff. We've uh, we've really gone to town with all the Pikes Peak stuff, so I just want to look at something kind of fun here. So, um, and we got two different Ferrari stories to talk about. There are some very collectible and expensive Ferraris that exist, the Monza SP1 and SP2 hypercars, and they are beautiful roadsters. They, it's a, it's a Ferrari that comes from the factory with no roof and no windshield. This is a modern Ferrari that I'm sure you've seen them. They are gorgeous. They are beautiful. They go back to the old roadsters and sports cars of the the 30s and you know the the, the really early roots of of motoring and racing. And you pay a lot of money, you pay a whole lot of money to uh, have this roofless experience in a sports car. I mean, come on, if you want the roofless, windshieldless experience, uh, I don't know, you, you could buy a Jeep, I guess. <laughs> but it's no Ferrari. It's no Ferrari. And, for instance, the Ferrari Monza SP1 um, was, is uh, about $1.8 million, and it's roughly based on the Ferrari 812 uh, mechanically speaking, but the body is entirely different. Again, gorgeous, you know, gorgeous car. And, uh, you know, it's not a car I've ever seen in, in person myself. It has the iconic V12 engine in it. I feel like fewer and fewer Ferraris are offered with the V12. So uh, the, 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 the Ferrari Monza, again, very cool car. There's only 499 of the uh, SP1 Monzas that were ever built. And, uh, you know, and we're talking again, the, the, the multi-million dollar mark, almost multi-million, $1.8 million. And, uh, but there is an owner's meeting that happens with the Ferrari Monza. The, I guess, Ferrari Monza owner's club, you could say, gets together and uh, does, does a little bit of a meetup. And I'm sure it's full of expensive stuff and wine and cocktails and hors d'oeuvres and fancy things, you know. People who smoke cigars and pipes that are very expensive and, you know, enjoy fine wines. Yeah, the uh, not my crowd, essentially. The, these people would uh, <laughs> they, they would stick their nose up at any car that I own. Let me just put it that way. And the, you know what? I'm fine with that. I, I don't need a one point eight million dollar car that I can hardly drive. Just saying. And, you know, if it rains, I mean, you're screwed. You don't have a roof. There's no top you can put on, which does bring me to exactly what happened. Is that, is that foreshadowing? I think that's foreshadowing. Uh, what happened is um, there were 80 of these cars sitting out in the rain, and they got rained on. They were at this event. I guess no one checked the forecast. These million-dollar car owners, not one of them thought to check the forecast 
for uh, where they were um, where they were meeting up. And um, yeah, they get all the cars parked out at this beautiful racetrack. Oh, it's gorgeous. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's. And then it, it's, it rained. The heavens just opened up and started dumping on these cars. People are scrambling to get inside, to get anything to cover up their interiors. Didn't end well. Lots of very rare bespoke Ferrari Monzas got rained on. The interiors, just think of the expensive Alcantara that you, you optioned into this thing when you bought it. Yes, you checked off the option box. Sure, the car MSRPs for $1.8 You know with options, though, those options. Like, this is the kind of car... Where you have like a carbon fiber interior, you know, trim set. I'm not speaking for sure here, but this is the sort of car where you'd expect, you know, ooh, the little carbon fiber bits on the option sheet, you know, in the interior. It's like $150,000 option, you know, so absurd stuff here. And um, that said, uh, much of the interior of these cars is carbon fiber. So, I mean, at least carbon fiber isn't as susceptible to getting wet. I think carbon fiber can handle that. Um, and uh, that said, though, the carpets, the Alcantara all got soaked. And uh, what can you do? You know what? If it was my car, oh, oh, well, it's a car without a roof. I'm sure Ferrari thought that through. I'm sure it's designed to get wet inside. Oh, yeah. I, I say that sarcastically. <laughs> I say that tongue firmly planted in cheek. But um, yeah, you would think that Ferrari would Knowing they're building a car that is not designed to have any sort of roof. Again, these aren't convertibles. They are windshieldless roadsters. And there's no roof. There's no nothing. Maybe you have a special little option cover you can get to put over the, the interior. But, I mean, when you think about these people spent, you know, $2 million, essentially, to experience vintage motoring in a modern Ferrari with modern Ferrari performance. And you know what happened in vintage motoring back in the day? Is it rained and you got wet? That's what happened. So I guess all of the uh, owners complaining, oh, no, my car got wet. Well, actually, you paid for that. You paid to have that, that old school motoring experience, which includes getting rained on. Because no one who had a sports car way back in the day probably worried too much about it. They said, oh, well, it's made to get wet. Nothing in here is going to get hurt. It's fine. It's going to be okay. It'll dry out. Then again, cars of uh, yesteryear didn't have complicated interior electronics and touchscreen displays and screens in the gauge clusters and stereos and and speaker systems so but hey there you go my take is that you wanted to spend two million to have a vintage motoring experience which includes getting rained on so they got what they, they got what they paid for I don't know speaking of more expensive Ferrari stuff I got one more Ferrari story for you to wrap up with today I'm just having fun you know I I've been able to just recharge a little bit after this past week get get a little more sleep during race week on the hill climb you know you don't you don't get a lot of sleep so I'm I am I am ready and uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed to keep going with Ferrari stories like this a Ferrari 250 GT. Am I just clowning on Ferraris today? I don't know. Maybe I am. <laughs> Maybe I am. It's the GTBS or sorry, the GTSWB bread van, which is a uh, one-off car that was has a historic, historic uh, story behind it. Which I won't get too far into the the provenance and the history of this car. Um, but the the bread van was purpose built. Uh, essentially, essentially, what happened is the guy who commissioned this car to be built was uh, named Giovanni Volipi. I'm probably butchering that name, but uh, regardless, he wanted a car like this 
from Ferrari, but at the time, Ferrari didn't make a shooting brake kind of car. This The reason it's called the bread van is because this isn't just a regular, you know, kind of fastback 250 GTO. It's not. The 250 GTO, bear in mind, is a brilliant car, and it's very expensive now, very collectible. Uh, one of the most expensive cars to ever be sold at auction was a 250 GTO. Um, but back in the day when these cars were new, this gentleman, Giovanni Volopi, wanted to have an unusual one. He wanted a shooting brake style car, which you may know what I'm talking about when I say shooting brake, but it's essentially, think of it like the back of a wagon. You have a sports car up front, but then instead of sloping down with a fastback roof, it goes into a big blocky area and goes straight down towards the tail of the car. Makes it look kind of like a little wagon or like a, you know, maybe like a hearse. A hearse is a good way to well, that's maybe not the most tactful way to explain it, but that is essentially what a shooting brake sports car is. It's a two-door, but it's got this this back section that um that comes down. They're honestly really cool. Uh, Callaway, the uh, Corvette modifier, recently, a few years back, made a C7 shooting brake Callaway Corvette, and it was really interesting. They're odd-looking cars, and that's what this is. And This car has such a distinctive look. It was custom-built on a 250 platform and it had a streamlined body built in the in that shooting brake style and um it was unusual even for ferraris at the time this was a one-off car so it, it became kind of famous and people dubbed it the bread van because of that weird shape that it has and uh anyway the uh gentleman who is racing it now which i do respect this you have the guy who owns this car now um essentially has one of the you know, most expensive collectible Ferraris in existence, and he takes it racing in the uh, Le Mans Classic, which is where a bunch of other very wealthy people say, I want to experience vintage racing and vintage motoring. Does this sound familiar? Uh, I want to experience this, and I'm going to pay a lot of money to do it, except they actually go racing, and they want to go experience motoring and motorsport the way it was experienced near 70 years ago now, you know, hell, even a hundred years ago now. I mean, some of the first Bugattis that were raced were raced darn near a hundred years ago now. So um, they want to experience that, and they actually do it. I respect these gentlemen who probably have more money than any you, me, or anyone will ever see, and they take these incredibly expensive cars out and race it. Well, unfortunately, the bread van uh, was crashed at the Le Mans Classic. And uh, it was spun into a uh, tire wall, uh, sustained some pretty heavy damage to the body. Um, now, bear in mind, though, this car is worth about $30 million. I can't imagine the sinking feeling you get crashing your track car at a local track event. Your Miata, oh, you got like 10, 20 grand into this, this car. You took a cheap car and you put a lot of money into it to make it a race car. You crash it. Insurance doesn't cover it because it's on a racetrack. Well, imagine that times a thousand. Because, you know, this guy crashed a $30 million one-off custom Ferrari with a big, big history. Now, it's not the first time it's been crashed, so it has been repaired before. And you know what? With the estimated value of $30 million on this car, um, that probably means it's going to get rebuilt. It pro someone's going to rebuild it. This car is going to continue to go on. It's only going to go up in value now because in another couple decades, in the, the history plaque on this car as it's being sold at auction next, we'll talk about, oh, it was crashed in 2022 and, you know, racing and it's part of racing and, oh, it's all official. And, yeah, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Though, again, you know, it's, it is fun to kind of muse at the... Uh, 
the <laughs> the misfortune of these Ferrari owners, I, in a little bit of a way, it is. I'm not taking a jab at Ferrari. I think Ferrari makes a, a is a fascinating car. I think you know they they make an amazing engine, especially those Ferrari V12s. If I was presented with the opportunity to own one and could afford to do so, I can't say I would turn it down. Though strictly speaking, I mean, hey, they're uh, they're not my Ferraris aren't my style. They're nowhere near broken enough and janky enough for uh, for me to want to touch them. <laughs> but but uh, but having said that, I do commend the folks who have these cars and they race them. You know, if you're a no- if you're a regular listener of this show, you know, I am all about using cars the way they were meant to be. The way that instead of ooh, put them away and collect them and wait for them to go up in value and then go go put them on bring a trailer. I am, you know, staunchly against that sort of uh, tactic with cars. I think they should be driven. I think they should be enjoyed. And that's what we do with them. And that's what this, you know, the guy who owns this car, I don't know if he was driving it. A lot of times the owners of these very expensive classics aren't the ones driving it. They have a professional driver they've hired to race it, and then they spectate it like you would horse racing or something. But uh, but having said that, um, at least this car was getting driven. That, to me, means that the value of this car was not that it's a collectible. The value of this car was that it was able to perform a certain task, perform a certain feeling, a, a certain experience, and it continued to do that up until the day that it was wrecked. And you know what? They'll, I guarantee they're going to rebuild this thing. This car is not done yet. This car, you know, though, in terms of going out in a blaze of glory, it's better, I think, to have been crashed racing than, you know, rot away in a collector's warehouse and being unmaintained and having the seals dry out and just collecting dust that's not what these are for so um is it a tragedy that such a rare car was crashed sure is it that much of is it expensive absolutely is it bad though i don't think so this is in a weird convoluted way it's almost better that this is how this car uh you know gets used you know what because at the end of the day 30 million dollars or not it's a car and it's meant to be driven. That is uh, that is my final say on this edition of the uh, Automotive ADHD Show. And uh, now I do want to thank you for joining me here. Again, coming back after a uh, week off. Hopefully you enjoyed your week, 4th of July, all of that stuff last week. Um, and of course, I do want to thank you for uh, listening and, st- and and sending car sounds into the uh, Facebook page, facebook.com slash automotive ADHD. I also want to thank... All of the people who made the hill climb stuff possible and helped me out with that. It wasn't just an endeavor with myself. So many friends were a part of it. I got to give a shout out to Devin for doing a burnout with his scooter in the middle of my live show at the Pikes Peak Hill Climb Fan Fest. That was amazing, by the way. If you want to hear that, you know where to find it. The uh, the podcast episode directly before this one. Go check it out. If you haven't listened to it, you are missing out. And of course, you are listening to the correct our show (laughs) so hey there we go i will see you same time same place next week uh when i need to watch more movies to come up with things to put at the end of this i don't know we gotta i gotta do it i'm slacking off so there you go i'll see you then